Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan is an American social psychologist and professor. He is author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics, and The Coddling of the American Mind. His main areas of study are the psychology of morality and moral emotions. I like the bit where he actually said he studied all those ancient texts and came up with where they pertained to psychology. That's not easy, is it, Jen? No. Have you ever done that? Maybe. No, you haven't. <laughs> when have you ever studied any text and tried to cut? Well, because of that degree you claim to have. Degrees. It's not as good yep. as the degree I would have had if I'd have done a degree. Remember? Where I've done that MA degree. That's right. My imaginarium. <laughs> the, imag- the MA. Yeah. What have you got again? I've got a BA and an MA. Bama. And what? <laughs> and what are they in? Communications with video production and cultural and creative industries. Do you use it at work? I guess so. When? I've never seen you do any. Social media would be an element because I did my dissertation on the relationship between fans and celebrities in online spaces. What did you learn? Uh, That uh, you need to nurture the parasocial relationship so they feel more close to you, but actually you know nothing about them. Mm. Did you, what about that bit when Jonathan Haidt said look there was that axis the horizontal axis is closeness you know like you, your family and your friends are close to you and then just some stranger they're further from you on that axis and then there's the hierarchical axis people being more or less important than you yeah pretty good isn't it yeah that's what celebrity is though they feel a closeness that's why princess everyone mourned when princess Diana died but they didn't know she didn't and know because she was our queen of hearts Exactly, but she didn't know who you were. She understood <laughs> us. You don't understand your Irish. You don't know what we go through, the English. She didn't know you existed. The suffering of our people. <laughs> no. I've always thought I'd have got on with her. Why? Because uh, I think she was sort of like a bit flirty. Do so you think she would have got on with most people? No. <laughs> Me. <laughs> That's who. See, she didn't really nailed it. Everyone oh, no. thought they had a personal relationship. Right. With it. Like I once saw this documentary about Hitler <laughs> and it spoke <laughs> to, goes to Hitler. <laughs> on all these Hitler youth, like this Hitler youth lad. It was like it was it was called the twentieth century's documentary. It was very good and it was like from people that were there. So there was kids during the Hitler youth and it was sort of just studied all of that century, like you know, it was good. It was like BBC, you know. Like um they, this lad goes, or he's an old man now, he goes, uh, did you see, did you see, he says to his mate in the Hitler Youth after, that moment where he said, and you, you my son, you are the future of Deutschland, or whatever he would have called it. Um, he goes, he looked right, in that moment he looked right in my eyes. And he said, and his friend went, no, in that moment he looked in my eyes. That's the old power of a charismatic demagogue there, yeah. as expressed through that documentary. Um, so, uh, so uh, Jonathan... Hi, you're going to love this episode. Did you love it, Jen? Yeah, I've been excited for him to come on for like two years. Two years of excitement. <clears throat> there must have been lulls, though, over I wasn't years. continuously thinking about it. I don't think I've ever seen you continuously enthusiastic for more than a few seconds about anything. <laughs> I know, I'm working on it. Are you? Yeah. I'm trying to figure out if I like anything. <laughs> um, you like clothes? Yeah. You like uh, the view out your window? Yeah, I need to appreciate the view. You like your new haircut, your new car, you like... Um... But they're not really like a genre. 
You like chisel chins? <laughs> yeah. Seen any chisel chins? No. Chi- <laughs> Hold on, I didn't finish the question. <laughs> <laughs> Seen any chisel chins lately? <laughs> yeah. If you're out there with a chisel chin, what, like Steve? Steve no, Ooh, I don't know who you're talking about. All right, well, let's just say there's someone. At- <laughs> <laughs> you know? Called chisel chin. St- <laughs> I know what that look means. Have you seen anyone with a chisel chin you like? Yeah, Steve. <laughs> chisel chin, Steve. All right. Well, look. Sorry for being a tangerine. If you do want to, chisel chin, Steve. He mentioned his projects. That, that he mentioned the links at the end. Who did chisel chin? <laughs> no, chisel not chisel chin. <laughs> Jonathan Hyde. At the first page. All right, hold on. Yeah, he mentioned them in the thing, but are they in here? Yeah, I put them at the beginning. All right, listen. Jonathan Height has got these projects, and they're important to Jonathan. And when you listen to him, you will care about what's important to him because he's lovely. There's this one called openmindplatform.org, link in the description, which teaches groups how to get along better despite political differences, and by God, you need it. Then there's heterodox. There's the heterodoxacademy.org, which advocates for viewpoint diversity and open inquiry at university. What incredibly important causes Jonathan Height is Height, excuse me, Jonathan Height is uh, involved in there. So have a look at both of those and see if you can help. Now let's, as well as you know, signing up for my RussellBrand.com mailing list, where you get original content that we're working very hard on and making it better for you, as well as unique opportunities to see me do like live online calls. And when live stuff returns, you'll get live stuff there. You should sign up for RussellBrand.com. You can also follow me on a variety of social media platforms. And we're actually starting to put stuff on TikTok finally, now that we've actually got some people with a bit of oomph working well, with us, rather than Django well, May. I tried. Couple of seconds of excitement, <laughs> Finn. What do you mean? But you, what, you don't like it if someone is too, it's too much. Don't I? No. Too much what? Work? No, too much presence in a room. Like continuous flow of energy at you. Do I not like it? No. No, yeah, I don't, do I? No. Yeah, why? It makes me nervous, does it? It's tiring. I think you get tired of it. You feel like they're trying to impose themselves I do on think you. that. Yeah. Jenny, your, la- your laconic layabout <laughs> Irish charm <laughs> has wheedled its way into my heart. Here's some comments from the Nick Ortner podcast from, with Nick, who does the tapping solution. Remember, he's given you that code so you can get a, like a 50% discount, which is pretty damn generous of him. Simply use the password Russell, isn't it? Go on to the tapping solutions. and Forward know. slash Russell. Yeah, forward, forward slash Russell. <laughs> uh, and Jenny will put the link in the description if she remembers, if her enthusiasm don't wane. Kirsty Ann said of that podcast, you cannot talk your way into healing, working the body to release the stored trauma, pain, stress, and disease that's crucial for healing. God, Kirsty, and you're probably right. I had more breakthroughs with my physical and emotional healing with bre- with breath work and EFT than I did with 20 years of talk therapy. Learning to regulate the nervous system is something that should be taught to everyone. Well done. What a great comment, Kirsty. And who chose that? Me. <laughs> I did. I choose all of them there. Well done. It's good. Thank you. Adam Cottrell. <laughs> uncanny timing. Nice. That's just one sentence from Adam Cottrell. I was just sitting on my couch wishing how I could release some repressed emotions <laughs> and this notification popped up. Thanks. That's nice. Sitting on... I was just sitting on the couch wishing I could release some repressed emotions. Mandy Mushroom. Aye, aye. I was in physical pain when recovering from domestic abuse. Sorry to hear that, Mand. I knew answers... I knew answers in a psychological way, but I couldn't get rid of the emotional pain. I did a tapping session with a professional and it absolutely changed my life. I'm still working on myself, but it helped me move on. I felt so lucky as I don't think I'd be where I am now without it. Well done, mate. 
So, he says, damn it, I mocked people for tapping themselves. Time for me to eat humble pie. That's right, mate. you got to do it. Remember, I'm doing a new podcast, Ask Me Anything, where you can ask me anything you want. What? I always say ask. You, we'd love to hear from you. To get involved, simply go over to russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything. It's spelled ask me anything and record a voice message with your question. What type of question would you even ask, Jen? Well, you haven't fulfilled the last question. Here's the question I'd ask for you if it was ask me anything. Seen any little chisel jaws <laughs> coming your way, lady? Yeah, I'd see more of a jaw if someone shaved their beard. What, chisel jaw or us? Yeah. I worry it would disappoint thee. Who? Chisel jaw. My own chisel jaw. Could it be as chisel jawed as old Steve's? Yeah, I think so. Let's hope. <laughs> I'm thinking about it when I you shaved. You should do the... it before it's too late. When I was shaving the beard this morning, <laughs> tap up the neck, tap up the neck. When I was doing the shaving earlier, I thought maybe I will have. You should do it. Stuff. It will go back really quickly. My wife says she thinks I might look odd. Yeah, but only for a period of time, have and you, you won't. The... Yeah, why do you do anything that makes you look odd for a period of time? I'd cut this my is hair. For good cause. Yeah, I'd... but your hair looks nice. Yeah, but your face might look nice. What about Big Mouth? Do you see it on Netflix? What if I look like Coach Steve? <laughs> no. You'll look like you with a mustache. Right, fair you enough. You need to try it. Okay, okay. Ask me anything. <laughs> it's available to Luminary subscribers. Now, make sure to go to the mailing list, sign up for russellbrand.com, follow me on all social media, and soon we've got, please God, Adam Curtis coming up roses all over our podcast. He's got a new TV project that he's here to promote, and uh, we'll have possibly even a couple of episodes with him. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Jonathan Haidt, I'm so happy to have you as a guest on Under the Skin. I think you're a very, very exciting thinker and communicator. Thanks for coming on. Oh, well, thank you, Russell. I, I love your work. I, I loved you as Aldous Snow. I guess it's hard to shake that uh, perception of you, but uh, let's go. Let's leave that perception happily lingering in our midst of me as a hedonistic, uh, decadent comedy rock star. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. I can, I can carry that. Okay, good. I'm looking at your book, um, The Happiness Hypothesis. Is that your latest book? No, that was my first book, my, my firstborn literary child. Uh, it's my wife's favorite book. It's the most humanistic. The, other, the later two are somewhat darker, The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind. Oh, yes, The Righteous Mind. This is like the, describes the division between the left and right, among other things, hey? Um, and the coddling of the American mind is that your that's your latest book? That's right. Written with Greg Lukianoff, it describes how Gen Z is really different from uh, uh, from previous generations and is really having trouble, especially with mental health. That's interesting. And okay, okay. Well, I mean, there's so much that I want to ask you about, but perhaps we'll start if if we may, Jonathan. Because uh, like when Jenny, who produces this show, chatted to you before, we talked about, uh, you know, it's difficult to avoid the subject of American politics. The Sorry about that. Fishers. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Really? What do you, uh, can you tell, like, I'll frame it as, as 
to a degree. I, I feel like, um, you know, like Trumpism, at least in terms of its direct and official uh, empowerment, has is concluded. And what do you think we have to, what do you think we should be concerned about now? And is there anything we can be optimistic about now? Sure. Well, why don't, why don't we start by, by trying to figure out how it came to pass that America elected uh, a man like Trump with such obvious personality flaws, such an obvious uh, narcissist um, and such obvious racism. And so uh, my early research was on morality and how it varies across cultures. And uh, in 2004, it, it, I realized that the left and the right in the United States were so far apart and there was so much animosity. Uh, they were living in different worlds even back then. And so I started applying moral psychology to understand the left versus the right as, as though they were different cultures with different US history books, different economics textbooks, just different view of everything. Uh, and, and I've been studying um, political polarization ever since then, and it's just been getting worse and worse. So we, we have to sort of understand how we got to 2016 and, and elected Trump. And um, so I would say there's a, there are several major trends that have hit the United States, and a few of them have hit uh, the UK and, and other Western democracies. So I don't want to do a big lecture at the beginning, but I'll just list a few and then we can talk about them. Um, so one is that we really have to see the late 20th century as an anomaly. Um, so uh, America was and Britain were incredibly shaped by the Second World War and the generation that remembers that. And they were patriotic in, I think, a very positive way uh, in American Britain. And they were able to work, they, they were uh, in the United States, they were really able to work together, Republicans and Democrats. But as the baby boomers come in in the 90s uh, and the greatest generation fades away, well, the baby boomers grew up fighting each other, not fighting, not uniting to fight a foreign enemy. So there's the loss of a common enemy and of the Cold War. That's that's one. The other really big one, which I imagine we'll talk about more at some point, is changes in the media ecosystem. And so in the United States, newspapers were always partisan. They were rags. They were full of lies, except in the mid to late 20th century when we had uh, three television networks that had very responsible centrist or center left news coverage. We had the New York Times, the Washington Post. We had really high standards of journalism. That was a temporary thing. Um, once we got cable TV, the, uh, the entire, you know, before that there was broadcasting, like, you know, you, you know you're, you're uh, transmitting to the whole country. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody had the same information. But once you get cable TV, you get narrow casting and Fox News in the United States and Rupert Murdoch in general um, is much more polarized. And they, they develop a formula that really attracts conservatives. And the Republican Party begins to radicalize in the, they begin shifting to the right and radicalizing in the 1990s that accelerates in the, in the 2000s. Um, and then once you get the internet and social media, um, social media starts off not polarizing. We all were very optimistic about it up until 2009, 2010. Oh, the Arab Spring. Oh, you know, social media is going to put power in the hands of the people and democracy is going to thrive. Well, we were wrong about that. Um, social media just shredded any possibility that we could be on the same page, that we could share facts, that we could live in the same world. And we might never again live in a shared world, or at least not for the next 10 years. I mean, who knows what it'll, it'll be like in 50 years. But I think the 2020s, we're going to see more of this. So anyway, just to finish this up, by the time you get to 2016, we have left and right hating each other more than they ever have, living in different media and factual 
worlds. Uh, and we've lost the wisdom of the older generations. Um, most of what young people are exposed to was created in the last week. If you consider the end of the 20th century to be something of a cultural anomaly in terms of the attitudes towards patriotism, what, Jonathan, do you think can be said more broadly about a an, an idea such as uh, globalization and globalism, which has no historical precedent, we're simply not evolved to conceive of populations and territories on such a fast scale, Is that, you know, only for sort of half, for 500 years or so. No, that's right. So yeah, globalization, so I'd say social media, rising prosperity, and globalization are these three mega trends that have really, that are transforming life so quickly all over the globe. Um, so you know, I'll start by saying the good thing about globalization uh, is that when you take what we used to call third world countries or developing countries or poor countries, uh, you know, when, when I've traveled, I know you've you know, traveled in India too, and you look at the way people work and they were, you know, like a whole day's work would result in the production of a couple pounds of rice. And so, you know, that's not much value, uh, but when you hook up poor countries to the uh, global marketplace and suddenly they're making a few dollars a day, which is more than they were making, well, then you, you start getting them rising up and then it becomes more than a few dollars a day. So globalization, I think, can be credited for making poverty plummet on this planet. A couple of years ago, we hit a milestone um, it, you know, it used to be that the vast majority of people were living on less than a dollar a day of, of you know, of 1990 value dollars. Most were living on nothing. And then in the late 20th century, we, we get, um, we get it, it, poverty, extreme poverty has dropped down to below 10%. Uh, so we have to be, we have to praise globalization for that. It has created wealth, not evenly, but it has lifted all, just about all boats. Now, as for the downside, um, as you say, we're not evolved for it. Uh, we are parochial creatures, tribal creatures. Um, we love having communities and our sense of community is strengthened by having some competition or conflict with another community. But here we have a really big left-right split. So the left, the cultural left, the political left, historically going back hundreds of years <clears throat> is much more universalistic. And if you if you want to if you want to sort of have a, a sort of a Rosetta Stone for understanding the the, the the mindset of people on the relatively far left, just think of John Lennon's song "Imagine." Imagine there's no countries. Uh, you know, it's imagine there's no religion. You know, nothing to kill or die for. Just all the people living life in peace. Okay, so that's a dream on the left, which is anti-parochial. They are universalistic, and a lot of good comes from that, and a lot of concern about developing countries. The right is always much more parochial, much more rooted in, you know, sometimes in blood and soil. On the far right, you get nationalistic forms that can be very racist or ultimately Nazi. But most conservatives are more just rooted in locality, um, family, religion. So that's why left and right debate over globalization. Well, they, well, actually, <laughs> it's complicated because it's really, it's like the business elite is what most likes globalization and the far left, they actually hate capitalism and that kind of, so anyway, it's complicated, but yeah, we did not evolve to live in a global community. It's curious, I, I, I recognize what you're saying about um, 
global poverty, but I see that as an inadvertent side effect of the relentless march of globalization rather than one of its intentions, the concentration of wealth in the hands of a relatively few individuals and institutions is surely its explicit and widely achieved incentive. I feel too that we are entering a time culturally where it feels I find it difficult to locate the left as I previously would have understood it in terms of a left that is focused on dismantling real power. And by real power, I mean institutions, organizations, states that have the ability to organize and control lived experience biopolitics i i suppose when uh, i you know i watch a lot of as obviously you must a lot of uh, online and broadcast conflagrations about the culture wars i feel like who is talking to my constituency that actually think that there's no one that's saying we need to break down monopolies significantly. We need to share wealth. Like, you know, these kind of things are neglected in favour of a kind of, and that's, perhaps this is where we get into the sort of the, the uh, book, uh, the sort of the coddling book, I'll call it just briefly for now, like in terms of the, the incentives and imperatives of the new left and how that's become sort of dislocated from the traditional values of the left and its sort of former economic ideals. That's right. So it's it's kind of stunning that in the United States and in the UK, the you know the Democratic Party and the Labour Party, of course, were they were there for the working man. They were there for they were focused on class issues. Um, my my grandparents, uh, one of my grandfathers was a labor organizer in New York, you know, in the in the shoemakers lobby or whatever it was. Uh, and so, you know, from the 19th century and the writings of Karl Marx through the 1950s or up to the 60s, the left was focused on, you know, labor versus capital, class issues, the working class, and that was the that was the you know the bread and butter of the of the party's support. Um, and then the left is kind of on the on the outs, both with Thatcher and Reagan are very successful in our two countries, uh, and then center left politicians. Clinton and Blair kind of reinvent their parties in more, I, I don't usually use the word neoliberal, but I suppose it is, it is appropriate here. Um, they, they reinvent them in that way. And in part, they're capitalizing on the big switch from the economic left to the sort of the cultural left or the new left in the 1960s and 70s. Um, I don't know about the history in the UK, but certainly in the US, we had the civil rights movement beginning really in the 50s and spectacularly successful in the 60s. Uh, we then get women's rights, gay rights, animal rights, um, you know, gay marriage, LGBT, you know, transgender. So uh, we've had um, uh, a real liberation. I mean, it, it is clearly the left fighting for liberation from oppression, but I think they kind of took a wrong turn as they got so focused on, quote, marginalized groups, they began to engage in a lot of symbolic politics, still using a kind of a Marxist or Foucault, Foucaultian sort of language. And so now it's, you know, it's about things that really turn people off. Like in the United States for a while, it was all about bathrooms and who gets to use which bathrooms. Um, when all the while inequality is rising and the working class is doing terribly. So, you, you, it's, so the left has always been recognizably about power, but I think they kind of took their eye off the ball. Obviously, civil rights, women's rights, huge successes. But, you know, our countries are now a lot more fair and open. 
But the left is sort of doubling down on these identity issues. And they, in fact, don't even like the, certainly not the white working class because they think the white working class is racist. Do you see a corollary between the doubling down on these issues and the migration through politicians such as Blair and Clinton to a kind of a neoliberal left that still has the same economic interests and, and represents the same hegemony that is has traditionally been represented by the right? So it's not a wrong turn. It's just a, 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 it becomes a kind of and I'm obviously not diminishing the significance of the something as powerful and profound as the civil rights movements, the rise of feminine, uh, feminism or, or, or trans movements, of course I'm not. But the, I, I, I'm minded, Jonathan, of something that the gay rights activist Peter Tatchell said to me once he, he, when he was like, you know, campaigning for gay rights in sort of like uh, African countries, I think specifically Rwanda or whatever, and sort of globally too. He said that the, he said the establishment will ultimately always yield on civil rights issues because it does not affect the nucleus of their power, which is financial and economic. If you start to approach that power basis, that nucleus of power, they will resist it. And so if you, if you th- when I consider the cultural wars and where it takes place, the, um, the conflict it causes between, let's say, the um, conventional constituency of leftist parties, i.e. white working class or, white pe- or, or people of that class of all colours, and the emergent identity groups whose rights necessarily are being promoted, of, of course. But uh, these, the, this is where true alliances ought be taking place because the powerful remain ultimately unaffected by these transitions, whereas there's this sort of layer of society where there's all this sort of frankly needless conflict. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, we just had Martin Luther King Day here, and uh, you know, I was, you know, I listening to um, listening to his speeches and just thinking back on him. And at some point, I think it was he who said something about how, you know, the, uh, the, the, the granting of civil rights and voting rights was the easy part because that doesn't really cost anything. Um, the next phase is going to be economic. It's going to, it basically it's going to take billions of dollars uh, and this is going to be much harder. And, and that is the part that we're still wrestling with today and the Biden administration is, is clearly very focused on. So I think there is something to the perspective that you give there. I would add to it, you have to look at coalitions on both sides. So uh, um, you, know, in the, you know, the worst number of political parties to have in any country is one, but the second worst number is two. That <laughs> really creates, you know, that maximizes the degree to which we do us versus them. Parliamentary systems have their own problems with stability, but they, you know, if there's, lot, if there's a bunch of different parties, you have to make coalitions. It's not just the world divided evenly in two. So, uh, you know, on the right, Reagan created this coalition that seems a little unnatural, but had something in common, which was the uh, sort of the, the, reli- the reli- um, evangelicals and the religious right, um, uh, sort of nationalists and uh, far right, uh, more authoritarians, and uh, uh, what are sometimes called um, uh, economic conservatives or laissez-faire conservatives who are not conservative at all. They're what you call in Europe, liberals or what we call libertarians. So the right has those coalitions. So you can't say like the right has this agenda because there's these three different groups. Uh, On the left, I think we have at least two groups. We have the sort of the center left, Bill Clinton. uh, You know, I would put myself largely, largely there. uh, That is not anti-business, that generally is pro-business, but we, you know, trying to make it better for the, for the working class. But, um, and then you have more of the cultural 
the cultural left, which is especially in creative industries and in Hollywood and universities, um, which is focused on identity issues. So, so if we have that map, um, I, you know, so it, give, tell me your question again, and we'll put it in terms of like the well, groups on the left. What I'd say is absolutely nowhere on that map is there a group that's saying, if we are to make any meaningful impact on power, we have to concentrate on the regulation, taxation, dismantling, and in some cases, nationalization of these extremely powerful groups in media, in, in, whether that's new or old media, in energy production, obviously, sort of, you know, I call them traditional energy. And, like, and I think that this dearth of representation for that particular specific, and I would say uh, defining problem is what is exacerbating this conflict that the natural constituents of that territory have to reach to to populism on the right as it's the only thing that's in any way representing their values come on your parent your ancestors died in a war this is our flag you know on in both of our countries uh so that's where i feel the the real problem might lay and also may i say in uh, when you said the worst number of parties is one the second worst number is two and like a coalition government you know, it seems to me that the sort of and without getting too much into cons i don't even consider it conspiratorial territory it's quite clear that there are global interests that are transcendent of national bipartisan politics that are able to maintain their interests pay money to lobby with either party in either of our countries and are broadly speaking free from any threat of their imperatives being pursued and so like those two things no representation to tackle that problem and the reality of that problem is creating a new constituency with no home yes i think that uh, i think that's a good diagnosis uh, in the united states we at least had bernie sanders who was more of a you know old-fashioned uh economic socialism you know very much more the the worldview of my grandparents in, in New York City. Um, and um, so the, there, there certainly are still a very large group on the left that is focused on power and dismantling, but because they're focused on identity, it's about white supremacy or white privilege. And so they do want to dismantle, but it's not the powerful interests you're talking about. It's white people and especially straight white men. Those are the bad guys. And if we all focus on taking down straight white men, then the world will be a more just place. Now, this is an ideology that tends to be strongest, or I think is rooted in the universities and the elite universities in the United States. And we see, I think, evidence of it in Oxford and Cambridge as well. Um, uh, and, and you know, people who graduate from Harvard and Yale tend not to be Marxists who want to burn down the economic system. They want jobs in consulting companies, but they also want to rail against white supremacy, which has a very expanded definition. You know, we used to mean like Ku Klux Klan, you think white people are superior and should run the place. Now it's if there's a, if there's a racial imbalance, it's white supremacy. You know, if the leadership of a university, if the top three people are white, that's white supremacy. So we have this enormous amount of concept creep, which then turns most of the country against them. So I, I do think this was a wrong turn for the left, or rather the left has weakened itself by embracing identity issues as firmly as it has. There's the, I, I, I am inclined to agree, but then of course I am a straight white man. Uh, but like uh, my, my sense too is that by making an opponent of the, a constituency that would 
be most easily mobilised if the intention were to redistribute power, create a fairer society for all people, regardless of how they identify, including straight white men, then that would... I don't think it can be an accident that we've created this peculiar rubric that precludes alliance between the dominant cultural group and the most vocally... uh, represented um activist uh, sector shall we say i know that that, you know i'm not seeking to query the legitimate concerns of the groups that we uh, have been listing but it is unfortunate that they are find themselves at odds with you know like because the the, actually the sort of cultural background that i am from and to a degree in spite of the changes in my economic circumstances i'm still kind of a part of perhaps in the same way that you are both a, a Jewish and an atheist, I feel like I'm like culturally still belong to the sort of like suburban Essex and Greys and like ordinary people and state education and the National Health Service and blokes smoking fags. You know, this is like like they're not the problem. <laughs> they don't have no power either. Yeah, the the you know so there's research on. Uh, where people get their politics from or, or how they're formed. And the experiences you have between the ages of about 14 and 22 s- sort of set you for life. And so if, if you come out of a working class, uh, you know, labor, labor part, I assume people in your, in your town were mostly labor supporters. Actually, conservative, as in the rise of Thatcher, and like, in fact, they were they were emblemic, they, uh, emblematic. They called it like Thurrock Man. Like it was like like people like you know like where where those those ideas of conservatism hit hard. You can make you know these bloody elites from universities. You can make your own luck, entrepreneurialism, hustle for it. And Essex in particular is sort of was known as inverted commas white flight from the sort of East London out into Essex, and you know hustling and all that kind. Of, so it's um. It's interesting. It was like, yeah, it's that sort of that, in a sense, the kind of populism that has reached its uh, nadir or you know apex. Or zenith, yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's it was an an outlier of that really. No, that's right, because you're younger than me. I was born in 1963, uh, and so I, I was most formed in I you know in the 70s, uh, and I guess by the, yeah, and by the time you were in that age, it was the 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 working class had already become Thatcher supporters rather than Labour supporters. Um, so yeah, so it's amazing the way our two countries are are twinned, um, and uh, uh, you know a lot of the political trends are are so similar. Uh, some, and, and they're also very similar in Canada and Australia. Um, a lot of the things, especially things that we talk about in the coddling of the American mind, but continental Europe is is a little different. Yeah, it, it feels so different that I can't even beginning to begin to reflect on it, Jonathan. Um, might might I ask you? More, please, on the chapter of your book you recommended I read from your first book in which you talk about uh, spirituality. And I was gripped until my children took back control of my life, to use a Brexit slogan. Uh, like, um, like I, I, sort of the, if you remember it, you write about divinity with or without God and you sort of uh, frame divinity as a dimension that's difficult to hold within rational materialist concepts and you use a sort of a quote from Muhammad and from a cipher, like a, an Eastern philosopher that I can't remember the name of, but it's pretty cool writing. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah, let's switch topics. I'm tired of talking about politics. <laughs> and also might hold the solution, I feel, because... It, we need transcendence. We need to get out. How we can, we can't stick in this oppositionism. We have to find some unifying myth. 
Excellent. You know, you're right. I think you're right. This, yeah. Okay, good. So let, let's get into it and then we'll see, we'll sort of weave connections back to politics. But this, yeah, this is the most fun stuff I've ever studied is, is the psychology of self-transcendence. So, uh, you know, as I say in the chapter, I'm a, I'm a Jewish atheist because you can be Jewish as a sense of being part of a, you know, a tradition without believing in, in God. Uh, but I, and I study, I study morality and that's what I was doing in graduate school and, and, and early in my career at the University of Virginia. Um, but I was interested in the way that uh, sometimes people report a, uh, an experience that changes them radically and always in a morally positive way. So I'd been studying moral education and that's really hard. It's very hard to train kids and make them better. And it, you know, you have all these programs that try it and then it looks like they don't have any effect. So I was really interested in the way that these, these intense psychological experiences can, can change you in an hour into a more pro-social, loving, open, tolerant person. And so I, uh, I, uh, I forget which I saw first, but there was William James, Varieties of Religious Experience. He has two chapters on, uh, well, what, shoot, what are the titles? Basically it's on self-transformation. It's on, um, uh, what do you call it? Anyway. Um, Epiphany. Yeah, it's not epiphany, uh, but times when basically like Jesus appears to you or you feel the presence of God and people speak in these amazing ways about suddenly all my selfishness melted away and I felt that love was everything, you know, so you get this way of talking. And then what I found is that you get the same thing from people talking about LSD experiences and near death experience. Cool. And so, you know, as a psychologist, and I'm, I, I've always enjoyed uh, uh, Carl Jung, Jungian ideas, even though they're not respected in, in the academy, but the idea of these archetypes or these sort of ancient, deep emotional experiences, if you can get those in all these different ways, there must be some psychological circuit, like a button that you can press. And part of it I, I, um, was that I tried LSD myself in uh, 1992, uh, when I was, I guess, 29, and then I had these experiences. So I've been fascinated with them ever since. And what they all have in common is that we walk around in our, with our big, thick, padded self, especially in Western societies, we're more individualistic, and that gives us this distinctive, in individualistic, uh, work-focused, uh, creative, uh, ambitious self. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something happens knocks that straight off, we feel our boundaries dissolving and we feel somehow connected to the universe. And that's the essence of so many forms of, of spirituality and uh, mysticism is that loss of self, connection with everything. And that's why it's called self-transcendence. And I think these experiences are why I was able to do this work of then looking at left versus right, not judgmentally, but just trying to understand, because I was always on the left and I hated Republicans, I hated conservatives. Uh, but once I had these experiences, especially from LSD and I was going to India and I was reading Hinduism and Buddhism, um, I emerged from them really much more just able to say, let me just understand. So I know you've, you've had a, a long history of spiritual seeking. Does this ring true for you? Or you know, what, 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 have you had these, these experiences? Yes. And what you said about dissolution of self, I think, is absolutely fundamental. And I, I've experienced this not only from a, a, a sort of a psychedelic perspective when I was young, too bloody young to appreciate it or understand it. Or, you know, I was like sort of 16. Getting messed up. 
Yeah, I was just a twit. And I, but but that that you know, it's a shame that you have those experiences without any kind of um, uh, framing because I I would have benefited hugely. I think had I been sort of if I had I truly understood what was happening to me I mean like you know you should undertake those kind of journeys with a, a shaman or at least a medic depending on your preference um like a mate of mine who's uh I wouldn't say atheist Jew but like uh like definitely sort of humanist uh Jewish mate of mine went and done ayahuasca and he said like like in the in the um sort of I don't know the Amazon I guess and he said he was with like there was a guy that was there was a Christian guy with him, a Hindu guy with him. Sounds like a setup for a joke already, doesn't it? And indeed, it kind of is one. And he said like that the sort of the Christian guy met Christ. Someone else met a very much an goddess, spirit of the jungle. Other people encountered like uh, like uh, Vishnu or Ganesh. And he said that he was guided through it by a psychiatrist. <laughs> 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 yes, that is very much the stereotype of of left leaning uh, urban Jew. <laughs> Probably the spirit of Sigmund Freud for him. That's yeah, that's my mate Simon Amstel. He's a very very brilliant um, filmmaker and comic. Um, what I was uh, really affected by was your well, like you cited a, a, like a short story, I guess, by nineteenth century author that Flatland thing. Oh yeah, that is so brilliant. Yeah, British. Uh, mathematician i think yeah and his uh allegory was like that uh in a flat land of geometrical shapes like squares they encounter a sphere and they can only experience that sphere as a circle because that's how it intersects two-dimensionally in their plane of reality and the sphere finds it impossible to describe these various dimensions and when indeed the sphere provides the square with a transcendent experience of a three-dimensional space it includes a degree of horror which anyone that's taken psychedelics or had religious or transcendent encounters will perhaps identify with that that loss of self without framing or guidance or trust or acceptance can be bloody terrifying and Yes. Yeah, and that that there's a bit that you cite, Jonathan, in in your own book, uh, like it says, like that the square I think says an unho- an unspeakable horror sees me. There was darkness, then a dizzy, sickening sensation of sight that was not like seeing. I saw space that was not space. I was myself and not myself. When I could find voice, I shrieked aloud in agony. So like it describes the sort of discombobulation and fear and dread of that situation. Like, but I, I um, still do like, um, I'm it's sort of uh, abstinent, you know, but like I do these breath exercises. Now, some of them, mate, you know, the problem with the old spiritual life, particularly if you've approached it from becoming like a drug addict, is it's, bloody exhausting it's hard work it's built like on sort of abstinence ritual like asceticism letting go like pretty basic like a lot of like i'm a 12-step person and that's really strongly influenced by william james's work as a as as a matter of fact and carl jung perhaps like the two dominant um ideological influences uh, 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 you've already mentioned now like the, but like so i'm always looking for that kind of um breathless transcendent experience that you can only really achieve through crack heroin alcohol or you know what, what, what take your pick you know and like so this breath exercise that was taught by a friend of mine Biet, she like it takes you to a place where you fe- i feel that feeling i had it like yesterday where through like a series of breaths it's not even that bloody dramatic you're sort of sitting up and breathing inhaling holding your breath releasing your breath like with a strike at your chest i can't believe how effective it is it 
again, shuts down the personal perspective. The sort of sovereignty of individual perspective is temporarily relinquished, and yet there is still a data stream. There is still stimulus. There is still experience. And a kind of to experience while uh, untethered from the harbor of the conventional self can be harbor nice thank you uh, can be sort of um ter- like a sort of frightening can be frightening and i've you know like you said earlier that, that these experiences are, are of limited value if it, if there is not an ethical correlative subsequent to that spiritual encounter and like everything I do is framed within the sort of 12 steps which includes very basic I guess Christian derived in this instance but could we say universal ideas such as kindness compassion service surrender acceptance gratitude these ideas housed in a sort of a process designed to create a kind of transcendence of self through various practices and I feel that these might provide a kind of liberation from the, you know, well, I spoke to Satish Kumar and he said the problem with like the, the, the sort of contemporary activism and its focus on the identity aside from its merits is it's still an infatuation with individualism, which is essentially the legacy of the 60s migrating into Reagan's 80s and here we are now. There's no real solution without cohabitation, communion. And perhaps these spiritual ideas, Jonathan, like, could be used to mobilize and uh, create a kind of coalescence between these disparate groups. Yes, no, they absolutely could. Uh, let's go back to the 60s and see how things played out then, because um, <laughs> we are, at least in the United States, you know, uh, we always say we're more divided than we have been since. And then it's uh, you have to take either 1968 or 1860. Um, uh, so how do things play out in the 60s? Well, you know, the, the, the people who discovered this, uh, who, who rediscovered or discovered psychedelics in the 50s and 60s, uh, Timothy Leary and, and uh, his, whole, his whole movement, and then there was a, a group in California. Um, this, there's a fantastic book called Storming Heaven, which is a cultural history of LSD. And after I first uh, uh, tried LSD, a friend of mine, uh, my group of friends from graduate school did it together. Um, uh, after I had that transformative experience, somebody recommended this book to me and it was fascinating and, and really helpful. But one thing you learn from it is that when people first tried psychedelics, they had these visions. They had these visions like, oh my God, yes, peace and love. And oh, we have to give this to Khrushchev and Kennedy. And, and you know, if all the world leaders would just drop acid together, there'd be no more war. And you know, there were schemes, you know, could, can we put LSD in the reservoir of New York City? And <laughs> everybody would have a trip. You know? so, so these drugs are transformative and in ways that are towards basically Buddha and Jesus. Um, and um, uh, so yes, if more people could have these experiences, yes, we would be a much more peaceful species. We might even be able to live in John Lennon's world of imagine if we all, you know, did LSD on a regular basis, um, or at least intensively once, because the effects could last a long time. Uh, so, but okay, but okay, but here's the the connection. It wasn't just that; it was that uh, these early pioneers, most of them, it seems, moved on from the phenethylamines, which is, you know, LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, uh, and then, you know, Yage, but they didn't have that back then or didn't know about it back then, I think. At any rate, they mostly moved on to meditation. They mostly moved on to Eastern, you know, Hindu spirituality and meditation. Uh, and while the experiences of meditation are not as intense, but they are, they're sort of more real in a sense, and they, it's a practice that you, you get into. So, 
my question for you, having done, you've done both the psychedelics and you've done meditation, tell me how this breathing meditations, how does it change you or how does your how do you feel afterwards or how has your psychology changed when you, when it's really, when you get into that zone? When you empirically understand that the self is a construct, like you can not intellectually, but I want to say sort of viscerally, but it does feel like it's in your head as well. Um, then it provides a perspective from where you can contemplate different attitudes and behaviors going forward. Also, there is a suggestion, whilst impossible to prove, that perhaps all people would have a comparable or even identical experience if they were to undertake the same system of transformation, whether pharmaceutically or uh, respiratorily. And th therefore, and this is, I suppose, the point, that we are actually one and that it's separation that's the illusion. And if we have at the fundament of our organization, we are one, that's not to obliterate difference, but to recognize that in spite of difference, there is a oneness, then we might afford one another more latitude in the way that we organize our thinking and our behavior. Perfect. So that, uh, so, yeah, that shows, once again, there are multiple ways of reaching this state, but whatever the state is, the descriptions are surprisingly similar and it creates, it, it transforms people to be more accepting uh, and basically, I would imagine better citizens, um, certainly more able to listen to each other and live together despite our differences. So, you know, if we wanna pursue diversity of all sorts, uh, and now one of the biggest issues is political diversity because, you know, people, they're happy to, work alongside or marry people who have different religion or race, but the discrimination against people on the other side, they're so hated. This is now a new dividing line. So yes, all of this self-transcendence would, uh, would help and the meditation would help. I wanna read one of my favorite quotes. Um, so I, so the, the happiness hypothesis, its origin is that I taught uh, introductory psychology at the University of Virginia for 17 years. And I quickly, I started using quotations from the ancients to illustrate psychological principles. And I had the, and I realized like, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Like how, how much did the ancients know? Like, were they, you know, were they right about, you know, every, all the things they said? And um, so I, I, I read through all the wisdom literature, East and West. I read through, well, not all of it, but I read through, you know, the, the highlights, you know, Marcus Aurelius and Buddha and uh, uh, Confucius and uh, the Quran. Um, and took out every psychological claim uh, that I could find and organize them and say, you know, were they right? And, you know, the ancients probably were not smarter than us and they probably didn't know more about psychology. And they wrote a lot of things that were not right. But the stuff that comes down to us is the stuff that each generation found to be insightful and helpful. So we get this amazing historical distillation process so that a book like Marcus Aurelius Meditations or Buddha's Dhammapada or Jesus, well, Sermon on the Mount, that obviously Christianity comes through very directly. But these wisdom, these wisdom books are amazing and they are so right. And so I want to read you my favorite, probably my favorite quote. This is from a Zen master, Chinese Zen master, uh, uh, Sen San is his name, and it, it's re and it really is about this collapse, you know, uh, escaping the duality, as you and I were just talking about. He says, "The perfect way is only difficult for those who pick and choose. 
do not like, do not dislike, all will then be clear. Make a hairbreadth difference, and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against. The struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. Oh, wow. So we are so judgmental. We're so quick to judge. But your meditation, all kinds of practices, these spiritual transformations, they put us into that place where we can accept things happen. The universe is unfolding. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be fatalistic and say, you know, therefore, I can't change anything. No, you can change things, but you'll be much more effective at changing things if you understand them. And this is one of the problems I have with activists on the left is I share most of their goals. We need to do, we need to decrease inequality. There's all sorts of things we need to do. But if you're coming at this full of hate and contempt and anger, then you cannot understand the complex social dynamics and you alienate the very people that you want to change. I remember feeling, you know, 10, 15, maybe it was 20 years ago when it seemed that the uh, dichotomy or cultural clash at least was uh, being realized through democracies such as the ones we live in and the rise of Islamic fundamentalism that it became plain that the problem was not whether it was a secularly sourced ideology or a religiously uh, achieved one but the the manner in which it was pursued whether it was full of ferocity and vengefulness or whether it was you know like I feel like there was some quote like you know that the the that why don't all the people that just I ain't that bothered say to the people on the margins do you lot want to fucking calm down because I don't actually care you know and I feel that now that has become more fragmented and, and, and further fortified in that fragmentation there are a couple of quotes and and and, and perhaps a follow-up on, on, on one of your your remarks Jonathan in that you know like that we I don't want to engage in a quasi Rousseauian ennoblement not of even the savage but the past but say when that man Sensuna I think you said was reading that that in that quote he said like he makes this point hair's breadth about how delicate and complex the difference between heaven and earth presumably the ethereal ideal our ideal unrealized and the mundial and actual is and this coupled with sort of like just a few off the cuff kind of uh, references like a you know mongolian equestrian archers or jesuits speaking 500 bloody languages and being able to do everything like that i, I sometimes wonder uh, yeah this is what i wonder if the false markers of progress in medicine and technology are masking a kind of regression or stagnation in other areas of what we would call the you know the, our understanding of our own telos the understanding of our own progression that even we you know that the these furious uh, this furious oppositionism that you're describing now is m more important than the, the, than the ideals that they're purportedly fighting for that that if you are free from that fury that doesn't mean that you won't achieve advance but that you will be embodying the values that you're supposedly fighting for so yeah, there's a lot in that. Um, I'll, I'll just a couple points. The first is I think the clearest way to distinguish the good and bad kind of religion or or politics or activism is not 
is not exactly anger and fury. I, I'd call it fundamentalism. So you can have, um, it, so fundamentalism, as I understand it means, you take something, this is true, uh, nothing's gonna dissuade me from it. And you know, it, this defines my reality, whether it's a holy book or you know, political philosophy or Karl Marx or whatever it is. So, so the, the problem is fundamentalism. Um, and when religions are fundamentalists, like we have, a, you know, in America, we have so many, we have, you know, such religious pluralism, and most of the denominations are actually quite welcoming and loving because they have to compete with each other. American religion has been said, you know, why are Americans so much more religious than Europeans? One theory is that our religions are better because they had to compete with each other for adherence, whereas in Europe, you guys had state religions. And of course, if it's the state religion, nobody maintains it and it kind of gets boring or whatever. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, so the issue is fundamentalism versus more of a sort of a uh, um, having some humility and some realization that I don't know everything and my side isn't perfectly right. So I think that's really the marker is fundamentalism versus a, a receptivity to pluralism combined with some epistemological or moral humility. Um, the other point you raised is whether so, uh, the advance of technology and science, and I presume you'd also say commercial culture, is deadening our spirituality or blocking. Is, is that what you're after? And it's, it's misrepresenting progress. While you couldn't query the advance in technology that affords us this, the ability to have this conversation and a myriad other advantages, that it, it hasn't been accompanied by a, a psychosocial advances that we are What's that quote from that documentary that you're featured in that we've got, you know, like the technology of gods and the brains and Neanderthals or something like that. I'm being reductive or whatever. But like, a, I suppose that we could, because we obviously literally don't have the brains of Neanderthals, but like what, um, except for when we've eaten them. Uh, like, but, but like, um, I, I, what I feel is that if we were to, and that, that other point, mate, it was ages ago you made it about the sort of like the $2 for the rice. Like some, like Gandhi in some of his more socially, politically oriented speeches, which are always informed, it seems to me, at least by spirituality and even his willingness and ability to self-sacrifice requires the kind of underpinning that you and I have been discussing. That's right. As with many of the great civil rights leaders, religion, I think Christianity really helped them. It's difficult to think of, I'm sure that's because I've not tried to, uh, martyrdom without the underpinning of, you know, whether it's in like around, like suffrage around gender or uh, like race or whatever, like without a kind of a, a transcendent belief, it almost by its nature requires sacrifice. But like, um, like the idea that the goal of being able to produce more rice or get more profit for more rice, of course, I recognize dealing with hunger is sort of a, an absolute priority and dealing with poverty as in deprivation of course is a priority but i wonder if we might reconsider the advantage like where the hell are we trying to get to so fast you know like everything's got to speed up these are all underwritten really by gdp type type objectives which have been foisted upon us from people who benefit at large in the same way that agriculture benefited the top people at the top of hierarchical structures while decimating the diets of the people who were tyrannized by this new form of work even if there were more potatoes or corn or wheat available yeah um so yeah, it's you know to make these judgments about whether we are blinded or whether our values are uglier um, versus whether technology and progress is just amazing and good and good for everyone. 
um, yeah, these are very, very hard judgments to make, uh, you know, because if we go back 50, you know, 50 or 100 years, people are much less educated, they are much sicker, they died much younger, uh, you know, they were more racist and sexist. So, you know, I think, uh, I think in general, I, you know, I'm a fan of Steven Pinker and his books like Enlightenment Now and the argument that people have always thought that things are going down, but in fact, by most measures, things are getting better and better. So, you know, I, I think you should start there. Start by, with the assumption that overall things are- Why? What? <laughs> well, why start with that assumption? Because well, one thing about that assumption, and I'm not saying it's not true, is that that assumption would certainly benefit people that are currently, people and in, in institutions that are currently in power would certainly benefit from that assumption because it would mean, generally speaking, we're going in the right direction with that whole globalism, muted democracy, fatic uh, elections that don't really make any meaningful change other than in areas that don't impact the interests of the powerful. And I, so I think that, I'm not arguing with, you know, there's less sort of barbarism or brutality and it's better to have penicillin than not have it and all of that kind of thing but I, I think that this sort of um, spiritual starvation this lack of connection to nature both inner and outer is comparable to not having penicillin in a sense why are we trying to live longer and longer for if our life has no sucker okay so that has been a critique of capitalism since the 19th century um, this is it goes back to Ferdinand Tony's uh, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. So P and Marx, right? You know, so people, you know, you see the way the Industrial Revolution transforms society, and uh, you know, people see many negative things there. Um, but uh, a friend of mine, Ron Bailey, who writes for Reason Magazine, a libertarian, he's you know, he has a book, The End of Doom. He's very much this narrative of everything gets better and better. He grew up on a farm in West Virginia, and he says he wouldn't wish that on anybody. I mean, the you know, the dirt, the struggles, the discomfort, the poverty. Uh, so I, I I do hear you that this progress narrative might benefit certain people or groups in power. And if you're coming at everything from the perspective of let's start with power. Okay, that's that is a way to approach things. Um, my sense from what I've seen of you is that that is just one lens you take, and you you take many others. So you're not a fundamentalist, whereas many of the people in my world, in the academic world, in some disciplines and some majors, they they are fundamentalists about power and privilege, and, and they see things only those in that lens. Um, okay, so I take your point that. I'd have to, why should we assume things are getting better? And there I would just say, again, drawing on Pinker and others, that um, from you know, ancient Rome to now, you know, this tendency of, actually of intellectual elites, this tendency to say that, oh, things are going to the dogs and you know, our ancestors, they were, you know, they were brave or they were tough or they were spiritual or whatever. So uh, they're, they're, you know, by any objective measure of human flourishing, things generally are going up pretty steadily with just occasional dips. Well, like you you could take football, say, and say like, all right, footballers are better. They're fitter. They're, you know, they're not like if a football team from 19, in 2021 played a football team from 1970, the football team now would win because these guys, they're fitter. They're not drinking and smoking at halftime. You know, there's that, that these, that, that can be marked as a metric. But I, I suppose... In, you reckon then, do you, that this kind of utopian, Arca Arcadian idea that there is this before time, this golden age, which for some reason I feel like might be real, uh, is sort of mythic magic thinking, possibly underwritten by our 
uteral experience of having all our needs met in this sort of garden where there was a sort of a loving God that dealt with everything before we were cast out. Yeah. So, uh, so sort of social conservatives, religious conservatives generally do have that narrative that things once were, there was Eden and, you know, sons respected their fathers and people bowed before God and they followed. Make Eden great again. <laughs> I love it. That could be your new political part. Um, so social conservatives tend to look back and they have a narrative of, of decline and fall which you know, obviously is in the Bible, but it's in a lot of conservative thinking. The, the old days were good. And now whether it's you know, commerce and commercialism or whether it's the damn liberals or whatever, you know, they ruined it, but we have to get back to that time. Whereas uh, many progressives or people on the left, they're utopians about the future. And they say, we can have, you know, we can have a utopia if we just demolish all the structures of power, and then we'd have all the people living life in peace. Uh, and you know, I think both are wrong. Um, so, what about that circle, that circle sphere, able to transcend those two dimensions, see line, see time not as linear, but as a as a projection of uh, the animalistic consciousness, when like reality can be formed by us when we create it. Ideas such as linear time are only relevant for finite beings such as us because of entropy uh, and perhaps we could conceive of a different worldview i mean what i sense when i uh, look at um your interpretation and translation of esoteric spiritual ideas and i had no idea that you'd undergone that incredible thing of going through all of those books and finding anything that was could be utilized for uh, psychology and it reminds me of a thing that i heard that emmett fox who was like a writer who wrote a lot about christianity he said christ foresaw and understood that you know he's a christian so he's gonna say this he for he knew all that stuff about psychiatry and he's talking about sermon on the mount and say like in breaking it down through a new lens i guess because they were trying to make christianity relevant to people that were you know moving towards psychiatry i suppose um but what i feel like is that that my problem with the idea the assumption that uh, of progress is not that i don't think that it's true is that i think it's prohibitive my problem with the idea that there is some great past that we know that we've lost is not that you know that i think it's true but that i think it creates a sort of a negative tension and my idea about spirituality is that you know god is 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 and is not uh, like I, like and it's interesting you mentioned Jung earlier because I I recognise how controversial he is and, and and primarily because of his willingness to engage with mysticism and collective unconscious and sort of transcendent ideas that's for me seems powerfully powerfully relevant um um like that thing he did this beautiful thing that I can't stop banging on about um one of uh, and a Jungian analyst called uh, Edward Edinger did an uh, um analyzed the, the these engravings the British artist and poet William Blake had done of the Book of Job and in this it's amazing Jonathan you really like it I think I'll send you it if you want like this like he had this uh, there's this bit of analysis where like there's a panel where Yahweh is showing Job the the behemoth and the leviathan that I have made as I made thee and the um that this had been one of Job's trials in that it is made clear in the analysis if not in the the text there that um Yahweh is saying there is no moral imperative you have to be good God is beyond good and evil God is beyond category and taxonomy God makes all things you though have choice and if you do not become good then there is no good 
if you decide that, you know, actually I'm going to, you know, enjoy the carnality, and I think you, you wrote about that in your book, actually, that we have the choices of angels and animals, that if we decide to pursue our carnality, or if we, in fact, uh, cede to the unconscious drives uh, rather than the carnal and fleshly drives, then, then there is no God. There is no God. We make God, that we make the path by walking it to return to the man there that you were quoting earlier. So my sense is, is that uh, to, uh, to try and tie in, if I can, the sphere in a flat world idea, that it requires of us a kind of utopian faith. It requires of us a belief that this is plausible as the first phase of its creation. And my friend Adam Curtis, who's a brilliant filmmaker, says that all of this hullabaloo, let's say, in American politics at the moment is an attempt to mask the fact that neither the Democrats or the Republicans have any new ideas at all. That the Democrats are basically saying te technocracy, manage things, you know, give over, technology will solve this, Wall Street will step in, Silicon Valley will manage it for us. And the right saying, what the hell happened to our forefathers? And, you know, and no one's saying shit man let's tear this up because otherwise we're going to get nowhere and with your point there about john lennon's imagine you know like of course lennon simplistically and beautifully as only he could is saying imagine no countries but uh, uh, to uh, in support of john lennon i'd say it's only the opposite of what's actually happening we are imagining that there are countries it is our imagination <laughs> that creates them. There is no France. There is no Germany. There is no nothing. Concepts all. And like, a, like a, that through our imagination, through our own consciousness, we create reality. And if we are not bold in our pursuits, if we are not willing to look for these solutions, then they do not exist. Hmm. I think that's the longest sentence I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it's not even in my top 10 spoken ones. <laughs> um. Boy, lots, lots to say there. I know it did hurt a bit. <laughs> um, so my favorite social scientist is Emile Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology. And you know, Durkheim said society is God. I mean that that you know we 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 feel a voice talking to us. We feel conscience. We feel moral forces, and we imagine that it's like a, a guy up there, um, but it's actually society. And and um, from reading Durkheim, I, I learned how uh, how communities create things and how things create communities. And um, in in the Righteous Mind, I draw on a quote from William Gibson, who wrote Neuromancer, you know the the um, Matrix movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he says uh, the Matrix is a consensual hallucination. Wow. And that is you know one of the deepest points and most concise ways to sum up half of social science uh, that we. We, humans evolved to have a shared culture, to have a shared set of understandings that emerges from our interaction. Um, so we imagine this world and then we live in it. And uh, part of what's happened, uh, and, and, this is, and this is where you get, can get very Jungian and you can talk about, you know, groups will imagine a certain kind of society uh, and then, then this constrains them. And what happens then when you get really, really large and a lot of diversity. And then you get this media environment as you're getting larger and more diverse, which both of our countries are, um, you now get a media environment that micro targets and, and cats. Uh, so now you have the William Gibson thing, a, a consensual hallucination. There's not one big one, you know, during the war to some extent, during the second world war, to some extent, all Brits or all Americans shared some aspects of this consensual hallucination. 
But now we don't. And now, you know, in America, we're seeing, you know, in the most florid demonstration probably ever in a Western country, we're seeing large numbers of people, you know, most Republicans believing all this stuff about how the election was stolen and, and you know, the voting machines are, are being controlled from Venezuela or North Korea. I mean, bizarre, absurd stuff because we have all these subgroups doing these consensual hallucinations. Um, so, gosh, now I've spoken in a long sentence. I forget how it relates to, to yours, but it, it, yes. To- well, you answered that imagination thing that the reality has been created through the imagination, that John Lennon thing. By, yeah, communicating and collectively imagining, yes. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I, but, like, uh, but I feel like um, that you're a good teacher. Uh, like, I think what I like about you, if I may say, is that you're quite uh, like a rabbi or a priest or something. And it's very uh, like you don't get drawn into c- confrontation or being patronizing. Those are good traits. Like, I feel like you like no matter what I say, you go, oh, that's interesting. Well, I read this thing that is like quite nice and gentle and I find it quite comfortable. Yeah, oh, that's no, really funny you say that because you know this morning I was, I was looking up some of your YouTube videos to get a sense of how you are, you know, in in, in interview format, and I saw your takedown of Tucker Carlson, and I, you know you really nailed it that he always sounds like he's giving a talk to children, um, <laughs> and so yeah, it, you know there are a lot of people who are patronizing, and I guess a lot of professors are overly didactic, and my wife would say I think that I that I am sometimes, but um, <laughs> you know I love ideas, I love connections, and I think part of being a good teacher or a good writer is conveying that sense that reality is actually pretty hard to understand, and you can't figure it out alone. And you need people, especially people who don't agree with you, or don't see things the way you do. And so that was, I, I was always pretty arrogant when I was a, a, a young man. And it was the combination of these you know, drug experiences and studying moral psychology and then, and then writing The Righteous Mind, really listening to conservatives and libertarians. And I realized, oh my God, you know, it really is true that you can't understand something until you hear the critics of it, until you look at something from multiple sides. Um, so now I'm a great fan of John Stuart Mill, who really explained in, in On Liberty uh, why it is that we need, uh, we need opponents, we need debate. Uh, one of the most famous quotes, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. <laughs> so I do. Cool. I you know. I hope that I, that's I model cool. that in my in my teaching and my writing, um, and that's part of why I co-founded Heterodox Academy. So uh, if there are any professors listening to this to this podcast, oh, there are Ex- exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you go to heterodoxacademy.org, uh, it's uh, we're now about four thousand professors. Uh, and also higher ed administrators, people who are insiders to the the universities who uh, believe that we need viewpoint diversity. In order to do our work at a university, we can't have orthodoxy. We have to have the give and take and the the critique. Um, And then I I also co-founded a a project with Caroline Mell called Open Mind. So if you go to openmindplatform.org, um, it's a sort of an educational technology. It's ideal for using in groups. That's what we designed it for, but you can use it as an individual. It's free, um, but it teaches the skills of how to talk across divides. So uh, there's a lot of good psychology here. There's a lot of technology here that can help people. Uh, and I'm hopeful that in my country, uh, uh, January 6th was rock bottom. 
uh, when we saw that conspiracy theories aren't just things that you know we can sort of laugh at, but they can really um, drive people to violence and to just extraordinary uh, political actions that we would have thought unthinkable a few years ago. Do you, when you said the thing about the like the rigged voting machines and the more complex uh, and largely regarded as unfounded assertions that are cited as motivation for the capital uh, insurrection there. Um, what I feel, Jonathan, is regardless of regardless of what they present, and I say they, regardless of what people that are protesting present as the reasons, and this happened and that happened and that, you know, there is some legitimacy to what they are saying. Like, like what if they were to say, Look, we voted for Trump, and like he sort of somehow emotionally seems to vibrate on something on the level that we uh, like understand. In spite of the fact that, in terms of policy, there's very little to aid the sort of ordinary Americans' lives. You know, like you can point to that many things, I'm sure. And uh, but in electing Biden, we have brought to power a person who's you know, going to appoint that dude who's like works for the arms industry to work in defense. He's accepted all this lobbying money. So we feel very frustrated that democracy is deracinated from the interests of ordinary Americans. Now, like the fact that they uh, that this is not the way that the argument is articulated and it much more got the inflections of QAnon and, and anti-migration shouldn't, I don't think, undermine the legitimacy of the emotion. And in fact, if you focus on the sort of the more Baroque and absurd claims, then it, it uh, releases us from the important question, what do we do about the fact that there is no new idea about how to organise a more fair, just society that isn't simply propagating the interests of the powerful and maintaining those interests? Yeah. So I would agree that uh, populist rebellions are usually right about something. In fact, you know, something I say to my students is, um, you know, not everybody is right. And there are some people who are truly bad. Uh, and if it's one person who believes something bizarre, there might be a mental illness issue. But if millions of people believe something, then they're almost surely right about something. Maybe not in the main thing they say, uh, but they're not mentally ill. And, uh, and, and they're usually right about something. In fact, this dictum is really, really helpful in marriage, in everything. You know, if your spouse is mad at you for something and you're sure that she's wrong, well, she's probably right about something, even if she's not, even if you can prove she's wrong about one, one thing. Um, and so, uh, so I think we, you know, we have to ask why, how did Trump uh, get elected despite his obvious incapacities and, and problems, because as you say, he rode this wave. He he was able to articulate this, you know, the uh, you know the, the the contempt that the elite have for the working class. Uh, certainly in, in my country, um, the elite, and I think this would be true in the UK, is to a large extent the exam passing class. The elite since the '60s in both of our countries is based in large part on how well you did on an exam. So before then it was based on who your father was. And that obviously is, is awful from a democratic perspective, but at least there were elites uh, that were quite noble, that had a sense of noblesse oblige, that went into government service. Um, so at least aristocracies, and you have a lot more, you know, your country has a lot more experience than mine, but we- How dare you? 
um, at least aristocracies had certain virtues that they aimed for. And um, I might be romanticizing things, but I think so. I think that those ideals functioned in the same way that sort of corporate language masks their agenda. I think I sense that just because of the the way that aristocracies behaved, although there is a degree of romanticism that I cannot help but find. You know, I've been subject to so many royal weddings over the years that I'm somewhat affected. Okay, but but when our countries move to using exams to decide who goes to the top schools, and then the top schools increasingly determine who is successful, not in every industry, in business, you don't have to have gone to a top school, but you know, in journalism, I mean, journalism used to be like working class guys who would you know, be hard-nosed investigators smoking a cigar, and now they pretty much all went to an Ivy League school or Middlebury College or Haverford or some you know, elite, preps, uh, elite uh, liberal arts college. Um, so our elites now are the ones who did best on the exams. And, and here I'm drawing from the columnist Ivan Krastev at the New York Times. He wrote this really brilliant column where he pointed out that the problem with this kind of meritocratic elite is that they deeply and truly believe that they earned it. Wow. Hey, I got the top score on the SAT or the A-levels or whatever it is. I deserve to be here. And therefore, they don't feel an obligation to the, to the working class. So I think uh, part of the reason that That's populism cool. has exploded all over the West and even in India and, and uh, you know, in Brazil and other countries um, is because we have terrible elites. Not that they're bad people, but that the elites now really don't feel that connection. And this is in part, I think, why both the labor, you know, the labor party elites, your well-educated labor leaders and our well-educated Democrats have, you know, they're just lost connection to the, to the working class, certainly the white working class. That's spot on that, 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 that really resonates and makes sense that there is no emotional or yeah, as you, or romantic connection or lived connection to this is what is important. And I can see how I've had to kind of uh, necessarily for my own survival, unpick the idea of my own uh, merit or the validity of my own success. Not from a like, there is some sort of aspects of the philosophy, the 12 step philosophy that I sort of um, credit with saving my life, I suppose. Yeah, put plainly. Um, like that is a quite, because it, it's derived most latterly culturally from Christianity, there's quite a lot of. Well, you guys was alcoholics and you should be dead in the gutter. <laughs> There's like some of that stuff. It's written in the 1930s. It's all got that kind of stuff about it. But because there is this embrace of divinity alongside the rather Protestant punishing, you know, vengeful father stuff that's sort of at its patriarchal heart, it, you know, and because of the Jungian influence, like where Jung said, like Jung categorically said that the only way that a, an alcoholic or addict will overcome this uh, condition is through some kind of religious experience, some religious transformation and the ongoing support of a community. I feel that what's powerful about the 12 steps is that they might provide a model for personal transformation that might create a kind of the same way as you just indicated that a cultural phenomenon like an exam passing class creates a sort of a, a separation and a sense of entitlement that if a a return to inverted commas spiritual values perhaps particularly if it was through a sort of a secularized model such as the 12 steps could bring about a sufficient number of people that regarded the world differently that regarded in their, their individual identity as somewhat secondary perhaps in a rather sort of you know atavistic way to the interest and importance of the tribe parish community mm. yeah so let, let so let's for the let, let's be clear about what this 
divinity dimension is, because especially for your secular uh, uh, viewers and listeners, uh, you know, it, it may sound kind of weird or, or abstract. And so uh, in chapter nine of the happiness hypothesis, I talk about how social scientists find two universal dimensions of human societies. There's a horizontal dimension of closeness. You can be close to someone or far from someone. And there's a vertical dimension of rank or hierarchy. Uh, someone can be above you or you can be equal. And languages encode this. So if you speak French, it's two versus vous for both dimensions. You know, you use two for someone who's close to you or below you. Um, and English doesn't do that. Uh, we just say you. But our minds do it, so we found a linguistic trick, which is we'll, if it's up, we address them as you know, Mr. Smith, but if it's down, we address them by first name. Okay, so those two dimensions are clear. Everyone understands them. But what I found in studying, in studying ancient wisdom, in studying religions, uh, in seeing the similarities across sacred works, is that there is a third dimension. So if you've got like X, Y, and well, Z, the Z dimension, um, people can rise or fall on this without becoming your boss or hierarchical. Uh, and so I, re I, I really came to see this when I spent three months in, uh, in Bhubaneswar, uh, India, in India, on the East Coast of India in 1993, um, studying their whole psychology and, uh, of purity and pollution. And what I came to see is that uh, Hindus like Muslims and, and to some extent Orthodox Jews, there's a real conception of divinity of God and you have a relationship with God, but there's a conception that you, that to approach God, you have to purify yourself, you bathe. So in Hindus, there's a lot of bathing. Muslims, before they, you know, they wash the hands, feet, face. Um, so there's this widespread human notion that there is a God, he or it permeates everything, but sometimes we're closer to God, sometimes further. And it's generally put in in vertical terms. Uh, and so I have a bunch of quotes here in the happiness hypothesis. Uh, I'll just uh, say, oh yeah, like Ralph Waldo Emerson. So you're not coming from a religious perspective. He says, he who does a good deed is instantly ennobled. He who does a mean deed, mean or base, is by that action itself contracted. He who puts off impurity thereby puts on purity. Um, if a man is at heart just, then insofar is he God. Um, okay, all right, that one didn't have explicitly vertical metaphors, but it's the idea of a dynamic, our lives are dynamic, and we do things, we think things, and as we do that, we rise or fall, and so the angels are above us, the, uh, the angels are sort of like human, but above us, and here are humans, and then below us, well, all the way down is the devil or demons, but a monster is human, but less than human, more on the, on the demonic side. And so especially boundary crossers, are they really freak us out. Um, but that, but the, the cool thing for me was that the human mind does this all over the world and most religions really incorporate it. But even you know, me as a secular person, I felt it. Um, I, you know, and I didn't really have a name for it until I spent time in India. And, and when, when did you feel it? Um, I felt, well, so I realized that there were certain things that I, objects that I treated with a reverence for the physical thing, like, you know, some books that were just so enlightening. I just love them. And I, you know, I would, you know, like the physical book would be, I I'd treat better or, or, you know, L, uh, record albums, LPs, um, you know, like, uh, like, um, uh, um, Oh my God, the Rolling Stones, 1980 or so, uh, Tattoo You. Uh, the second side of Tattoo You uh, is just the most gorgeous thing. And I have a reverence for it. 
um, but also having a sense that I of just seeing things as just sort of elevated or degraded. Like you see, okay, so like by the time in the 90s, there was all this reality TV in which they would have generally poor or uneducated people you know, yelling and screaming at each other over infidelity and, and hitting each other with chairs. And it was very entertaining and really degrading. So I had a language for that now, that certain experiences lift me up and others just, even though they're pleasurable in a way, they bring you down. Yes, shame. Like it, I, a few points, like I bet if we were to look at, and you're more likely to do this than I am, let's be honest, the etymology of ennoblement, that it would somewhere indicate rise up, you know, to the uh, Waldo Emerson quote there. Even in, even in, even in desecration, there is an, of course, a tacit or perhaps even yeah implicit acknowledgement of the sacred. If you burn a flag, you are perversely acknowledging that flag's significance more in a sort of a, a, a social context and obviously one of the most divisive subjects in, in in the political culture that you live in the pro-life pro-choice arguments are both built on sacredness even like the obviously the the pro-life argument is that obviously the sort of sanctity of life somewhat um are uprooted from other areas of sanctity like the quality of life elsewhere poverty etc and the pro-choice argument sort of the sanctity sacredness of the of the in this obviously the, the female uh, personal autonomy over their own body their sacrosanct relationship between an individual and their body furthermore the kind of an acknowledgement of the transgression of per se protesters I, I sort of formulated this idea somewhat when I, my friend uh, Amanda Palmer talked openly and publicly. Yeah, she's great, isn't she? She talked about having an abortion and like how she had to sort of cross them lines at the clinic she went to. And I said like that, does it feel, do you think that having, and this is obviously just one case, but like, do you think that having an abortion is the same as like removing a wart or cutting your feet? And she said, no, it has a sort of a potency and a power to it. And I said, in a sense then, that is the meeting place for people outside with placards and people advocating in absolutely for the right of uh, women t to have sovereignty uh, obviously over their own bodies like that in terms of if there were to be a solution there could be as a starting point the mutual acknowledgement that the sacred is a the is an, a, a point of intersection yeah okay so three points first is i have to go in about five minutes to meet my daughter on her roller skates the second is that you're going to be wearing her roller skates. <laughs> I guess the ambiguity of the language. <laughs> oh, you're right. That it does sound like what I meant, but I didn't. Uh, the uh, second is that uh, the word ennoble, uh, the first definition here, to make noble, to elevate, to raise to the rank of nobility. So they're very much a vertical. You, you, you predicted it. Uh, and Those, these are the kind of wins that get me through the day, Jonathan. Small wins. That's right. Um, and then uh, the third point, oh my God, I just lost the train, wait. Desecration, sanctity, pro-life, pro-choice, burning a flag. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so my colleagues and I actually did a research study on this at yourmorals.org. We had a survey up about what do you think about, um, you know, what's your, what are your views on abortion? Burning the flag as a political statement, um, euthanasia. Uh, we had a, about twenty or thirty different divisive social issues, and then uh, you know uh, uh, maybe ten thousand of the people who took that survey also took our moral foundations questionnaire, where you get a score on uh, how much your morality is based on care, fairness, loyalty, liberty, or sanctity. 
one of the moral foundations is this sense of sanctity, divinity, purity. And what we found is that um, whether you're on the left or the right does predict most of the issues um, to some, to a large extent, but even above left, right, even if you already know, you factor that in uh, statistically, even above left, right, a really good predictor was the sanctity score. That was the best predictor across most of these. And so even, so on, on abortion, it was people who are pro-life have very high scores on the sanctity foundation. People who are pro-choice, it actually wasn't so much. That was based more on rights and justice. Um, so, you know, pro, yeah, so makes sense. Pro-choice, you wanna protect women's right to choose. You don't need arguments about God and divinity and nobility. You need arguments about rights and harm um, and choice and autonomy. So the abortion issue, I think, is, uh, uh, you know, and many people on the left say, well, you know, unless it, if it doesn't have sensation, if it's, you know, before it can feel anything, it's just, you know, a clump of cells. But many people, even non-religious people feel no, especially when you see the, the, uh, the really high resolution, uh, you know, images that we, that we get nowadays. Um, but the real, one really interesting thing was that people's views about flag burning also depended a lot on your sanctity score because people who, are, who score high on this, they just feel that certain things have an inherent value as the physical object. So like my worshiping the, you know, the Rolling Stones Tattoo You album, Second Side, you know, it's like, wow, this is, you know, so some people feel that about the flag. And if you feel that about the flag, then it's not just a piece of cloth. And even if a person burns it in their backyard and nobody sees, you still think, well, this is wrong. So yes, we are a religious species. That's why I titled the chapter Divinity with or without God, because divinity is within us. The psychology of it, the experience of it is within us. And then our cultures have created over time religions and also new age religions without gods. So we are divinity obsessed creatures, whether we are religious or not. I like that a lot. Although I will still allude to the potential of that uh, spherical shape to have access to a, an unknowable dimension that might have values that are sort of beyond language. Um, Jonathan, man, that was, I could talk to you every week, I'm pretty sure. That was an incredible experience to be in your company, uh, gra gratifying and uh, illuminating and incredible. Thank you so much for your time. This was great fun, and I, I hope we talk again. Be careful in those skates, is my... <laughs> yeah, they're really small and they're pink. They hurt my feet. <laughs> Thanks, man. I hope I get to speak to you again. Lots of love. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Jonathan Hyatt. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram, TikTok, any of them things. I don't care. Sign up to the mailing list, russellbrand.com, so I've got direct access to you. Excuse me. Oh, God, help me. Help me. Don't worry, I usually cut them out. Do you? Yeah. That's very responsible. I do listen to the podcast back and yeah, right. it. What about that time when it... I know. What about when you left my email it in it? It was Christmas and my, I'm blaming my sister. She came in and showed me some like fluffy thing or something. It was Christmas. Yeah. Your sister showed you a fluffy <laughs> thing. She included my email in a podcast, Jen. <laughs> I, know, I still I get emails from time to time from the strangest people, Dude. listeners, who I love, <laughs> <laughs> making the most bizarre requests. Look, anyway, we'll be back next time. You know, why don't you just email me? <laughs> like, you sign up to my mailing list at russellbrown.com. Also, if you like this chat with Jonathan, listen to Darren Brown if you want, or Candace Owens. Why are you suggesting them? Darren Brown Cause quoted of, Jonathan Hyten. What about Candace Owens? Uh, the political divide. All right. Left, right. Sure, okay. And keep looking at my YouTube channel. We've got uh, 
political, spiritual, cultural stuff all over it. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>